0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Elizabeth Elborn to tell us all about her book titled Empire, Kinship and Violence: Family Histories, Indigenous Rights and the Making of Settler Colonialism from 1770 to 1842. The book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022 and it traces the history of three imperial families that are surprisingly linked across time and space to help us understand contested colonial borderlands during this time period. Um, The book ranges, as I mentioned, in sort of time and space, going really all over the British Empire, helping us understand sort of similarities and differences, both of big institutions that we don't always think about on a personal level, as well as really quite personal and individual stories and helps at least me as a reader understand kind of how all of these things intertwined and interconnected and the interplays of these really contested places and political concepts um, throughout the time period. So Elizabeth, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book.
0: It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you uh, so much for having me.
1: Before we dive into all of the fun details of the book and your arguments, could you maybe introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write
0: this? Right uh, so I am a uh, professor in the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University in Montreal in um, territory that certainly has you know many implications from the contested histories of settler colonialism. So I guess on, you know the most personal level, I originally wanted to write something like this because I was in I'm interested in past relationships between empire settlers and indigenous peoples you know in the settler empire as a way to try and understand more about some of our own current predicaments the kind of the way in which the colonial past to some extent still haunts the present Uh, you know particularly on a personal level to try and understand some issues here in Canada better but at a more academic level I, I really wanted to find out more about how the early British settler empire worked in practice, including its violence and efforts to mitigate that violence. Uh, I was also interested on the basis of some previous work in in kind of the, how the idea of indigeneity has developed, like and whether people who came to be defined as indigenous tried to forge networks across the empire. But all of these are really big topics. So I was looking for a way in and, and I was trying to think about, you know, using particular family networks as a way to, examine like the complexities on the ground of these really big questions and I also I guess you know more. it's also the kind of the truthful answer which is you know how did an academic come to a subject I have these big picture ideas but in practice I actually also started to just kind of pick at the story of this one guy Sax Bannister um, because I was really interested in him he blew a whistle in South African context about violence and he left a lot of He collected papers that are used by South African historians as evidence. And I just kind of wanted to know more about him. And then I realized, oh, he had been attorney general in New South Wales and involved in conflicts there. And then he'd been in this other place. He's been in this other place. And I realized he had a brother who'd been in Canada and in Sierra Leone. And I realized he had another brother who was kind of in the middle of this, you know, the hell of the genocidal violence in Tasmania. And, and that kind of just pulling on all those threads ended up leading me to think more about personal connections and family and networks. So there is a kind of different levels of answer to that question, I think. In in some ways, the archives ended up leading me to the book.
1: And that's why I ask, because those are the interesting levels that help understand kind of how you ended up at this book. And just hearing um, that answer, having read it, I'm like, I see. I see how this is what the book um, ended up being when you start pulling at those threads. Um, and so I think that kind of in some in a lot of ways, your answer even has given us a great place to sort of continue thinking about the book because this idea of family, right? You find a particular person, he's really interesting, you start poking at it, and you're like, wait a second, his brother's over here doing what? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is I think something that anyone who uses archives probably identifies very strongly with is you start poking at one person and then it takes you off and suddenly you're over here. So in a lot of ways, there's kind of an obvious answer to this next question in that sometimes that's where the sources lead us. But could you tell us more about why you focus the book on family and kinship ties as a way of understanding the British empire? Yes.
0: Um, So I actually, I I wonder if I could take maybe a couple of different stabs at that because they're kind of in, in different ways. Please. Okay, so I, I'd say on the most basic level, I, I'm wanting to argue that this is a period, like the late 18th, 30th, 19th century, in in which like family and kinship are really important for political power, um, and that, you know important on the British end, um, obviously with aristocratic elites in in Britain, but they're also important in different ways for the way like the empire functions on the ground, and they're also, I could have wanted to argue also really important for how a number of indigenous societies are structuring their own like power relationships and diplomacy. So there's an element here of kinship as also very political. And I think you can't really understand the politics of this period if you don't take into account things like kinship and family relationships on the ground, like both as a form of like personal relationship, but also in these more systemic ways. So I was really interested in how kinship ties are used to create um, power dynamics and then I'm also interested in how like settler states became more bureaucratic. They tended to create the idea of family relationships as you know corrupt, and um, in ways that often end up justifying um, you know settler white supremacy in, in some complicated and really interesting ways. But it also tied into you know British debates about liberalism and about um, democracy. So all of this is incredibly complicated, and I think you can't kind of get at it without unpacking some of the elements of kinship. But also, secondly, at a different level, I, I'm really interested in different uses of you know, kind of family and kinship relationships through time. And something that I think I came to rather than starting with was just trying to understand a little bit more about how um, kinship might work very differently in you know, different societies. So in particular, North American indigenous societies, particularly in the, the Haudenosaunee communities that I looked at, you know, incorporating new people strengthens the group and it might be a way to manage settlers or to create economic opportunities, for example, in the fur trade or to strengthen the group militarily or create diplomatic links. So I I became much more conscious through really, again, through, I guess, reading Indigenous accounts um, of this centrality of using kinship as a way to try and manage settlement. And I think, again, that that's something that you don't, readily capture if if you don't have a kind of nuanced effort to look at what's actually happening on the ground. And you you could also see that in, for example, the way in which Haudenosaunee use diplomatic language that incorporates kinship ties um, and try to develop relationships using actual or fictive kinship. And and I think um, that ends up having all kinds of implications, for example, in the ways in which treaties are understood differently. Um, at the time and subsequently, are they about forging relationships, kinship ties, or are they about making you know abstract um, claims about property? <laughs> with you know, two different ways of thinking. So I guess on a third level, I also think um, you know kinship is a metaphor with a lot of political bite. Settlers often come to you know define the nation as a kind of white family or a, pe- a people which excludes indigenous people and. I argue that happens during the American Revolution and that this requires distancing themselves from actual kinship ties. It's a real kind of forgetting about past kinship ties between settlers and indigenous groups and uses of like metaphors of infancy to describe a very wide variety of indigenous people as somehow children. And I guess on a most basic level, uh, despite all of these different layers, I'm also just really interested in people and in relationships. And I find family a fascinating way to get at that, a- among other things, also enabling me to look at how gender works and, and to bring in the ways in which uh, women are incorporated into family networks, both as things that constrain them but also give them access to power and um, access to many other things. So that's a really long-winded, multi-layered <laughs> answer Um I guess the simplest way of putting it is, I think kinship really matters on a variety of levels. And then at a more personal level, I'm I'm just really interested in the relationships of kinship and family.
1: I think that that answer picks up a lot of the different um, things that when we get into the details of the particular families, um, there'll be even more examples of kind of all of those layers playing out in real instances. And I think you've also picked up on a bunch of things that I found really interesting, kind of provocative to think about um, in terms of the narratives we traditionally understand of how institutions are built and how settler colonization was enacted. Um, This idea of some communities holding on to kinship ties, Right, kind of, they are really important for things like diplomacy and then other institutions going, no, actually we're going to explicitly move away from that. Yes, um, yes. And that being a very different way of looking at essentially the same thing and kind of making choices about how to engage with it. Um, but we'll get into that in more detail, I think through the actual families, because that's one of the, one of the things I really appreciate about the book is it's not theory in the sense of here are all these words and maybe they mean things and we actually see <laughs> it in practice. So can you tell us about the three families in the book and how you chose them?
0: Yes, right. I should also add one other thing about family ne- families is also that they're networks. And, and you know that's actually a way that empire works is by networks, particularly in the early modern period. So that was maybe partly related to how I chose the three families. So um, the first family is pretty famous, mythic, family, a lot of mythic residents, um, the uh, Haudenosaunee branch family, Kanekahako or Mohawk um, family, um, that I'm describing as a kind of a network between um, certain Haudenosaunee members and um, white elites, particularly um, in the first instance, William Johnson, who was, uh, as many people will know, who was the superintendent of Northeastern Indians um, and who, you know, forging the so called Indian Department, uh, which is a way of trying to manage relationships with Indigenous people um, in a time in which their alliance with Indigenous people is really important militarily to the British. So, um, Joseph Brandt's sister, Molly Brandt, famously had a long standing relationship with uh, William Johnson, and they had eight children who play a variety of political roles, and they're very important in the American Revolution. Um, they're also very controversial, and, and there's lots of debates about them and what this relationship might mean. But I, I also kind of pick them up by looking after this very famous period, by then looking at what happens to some of those children, and, and on what happens as the um, among the six nations are essentially um, ethnically cleansed from you know North America during the American Revolution and migrate to Upper Canada and um, deeded land in exchange for the a very, very, very in a, in a you know, inadequate exchange for the land that the um, British gave away um, at the peace negotiations, really betraying their allies. So there's this whole kind of history around the Brads. So, so I'm trying to use them in part, as a way of tracing the shift in these relationships, as, as you can really see this family moving from being really central to mm-hmm. North American political diplomatic relationships and being really crucial military allies, and then moving into this, um, period in, in which um some of the I kind of traced at the end families who would say, well, you know, we're not going to talk about our so-called uh, you know, quote unquote Indian family. We just don't want to acknowledge them. So that you can see this shift. So I, I I could see them as um really a way of getting at some of these changes. Also they're very well documented and have led a you know so that's something that I also wanted was able to have actual, you know, really strong details about um an Indigenous family not only from a settler perspective, although that's obviously a really important and difficult issue given given the colonial nature of the records. So those are the Brandts. Um Then um, I have my third, my second family are, are the Bannister family. So they were a British gentry family that were down on their luck. Um, they spend a lot of their they, they, were, they spent a lot of their lives trying to cope with the fact that their father has gone bankrupt. They don't have the status they used to have. There's three brothers, at least four sisters. I'm not 100% sure how many sisters, but um, there's three who are really important in the records. And these brothers um, try to really make a living for themselves in some ways as colonial officials, in some ways as merchants, but then also as quote-unquote experts who are trying to present you know, Indigenous concerns. And it's a way for brokering their own careers but the one of the bannisters one of the brothers i focus on the most Sax bannister um, is genuinely um, i think really trying to make empire work he he really wants to be a humanitarian and, and he is hugely important in blowing a whistle on all kinds of violence in multiple parts of the empire so i was really interested in that they also move around the empire constantly um, they're in all kinds of places um, between them they're in uh South Africa, New South Wales, Tasmania, Victoria, in um, Western Australia, in um, Sierra Leone. So they are mobile imperial family who I really find interesting in terms of the way they're both showing uh, the economic elements of empire, how they're desperately trying to make an, a, a living from empire um, and they're really committed to it and have to maintain it. And at the same time, they're trying to you know, kind of institute this more liberal way of building a humanitarian empire. So I was interested in them for all of those reasons. Um, and then thirdly, the Buxtons, who are another well known family, uh, Thomas Forwell Buxton, was the parliamentary leader of the abolitionist forces. So he's very prominent. Um, when slavery was abolished, just everyone I think will know in 1833, but he shifted towards Indigenous affairs, Indigenous rights, and um, sits at the centre of a network that's trying to gather information. So um, as I've written about in the past, he is part of a group that tries to set up a parliamentary commission on uh, violence against Indigenous people and tries to come to this better understanding. And, And it's clearly highly problematic in ways that we can talk about and I I think a lot of the solutions don't work but he's trying to in a way be the spider at the center of a web getting information from around the empire and so I was interested also in how that works and how those networks function. He's also um, part of a family network in which women play crucial roles and um, so I tried in the book actually to focus on his daughter rather than on Him, Uh, so he's the kind of he's the British uh, on British end of things, uh, focused on knowledge gathering and the construction of information about empire at this uh, moment of crisis and and transition.
1: Thank you for taking us through those families and some of the interesting people uh, that you discovered in them. I I must admit, there were definitely times reading these details where I was like, oh, that must have been fun to find in the archive. Oh, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the the shipwreck was fun, for example. Exactly.
1: Yeah, no, there were there were loads of really fabulous details. And so I definitely want to highlight to listeners that um, we are, well, already, but we will continue getting into sort of the main themes and arguments of the book. Um, but that for the listeners who really love all of that historical detail... Um, the book really does much better justice to it than we will probably manage. So pointing listeners in that direction. Um, but we are going to continue uh, because I think one thing you, you briefly touched on is this idea of time period, right? Looking at the Brant family, for example, during kind of the time that they're known for, but also a little bit afterwards, right? Thinking about the moment of the end of slavery, but of course, that's not where the story stops necessarily. So the book obviously focuses on 1770 to 1842, why did you start and end on those dates, and sort of how did you choose them?
0: I was uh, trying to, I, I think, frame a period that actually the period that uh, C. A. Bailey once called the Imperial Meridian, um, uh, quite a significant you know, transition period from the late 18th to the early 19th century. I started in 1770 because I wanted to talk about the American Revolution. I, I wanted to bring um, what you know would become the U.S. into a discussion of settler colonialism, and, and I. You know, see the American Revolution as this really important turning point in British settler empire. And I ended in 1842 because that was the um, date of the Niger expedition, um, the failed Niger expedition. And I, in addition, I see this as a period of um, kind of real shift away from maybe to some extent the importance of family power towards a more bureaucratic. Uh, white state as settler colonies try to claim independent, or you know, some degree of nationhood become uh, able to market themselves on international stock markets as uh, Angela Tozer, a very good PhD student at McGill argued. Um, so I think that there's a real transition over that time period. and But also I, I wanted to capture those uh, key events um, also on a really, um, I guess on a more personal level, I, I, I end in the 1840s because in terms of the, the families that I'm working with, um, for the Buxtons, it was a period of um, kind of great personal failure, with the failure of the Niger expedition and tragedy, and Buxton die shortly after that. Um, for the Haudenosaunee, this is the period in which the kind of colonial administration really moves in on the territory in upper Canada and um tries to persuade them to give up a lot of it and and transform it into cash and, and that cash is supposed to be kept in trust for them but ends up you know really being used in fairly corrupt ways by the colonial state and also is used to fund residential schools. So there's a kind of ending and a shift there. I think in terms of that family there's a real shift in the nature of relationships. Um, and then Bannisters, it's a little harder to find a clear ending point as they, they continue. So I, it doesn't work quite as well in a narrative sense for the Bannisters. But I, I do really see kind of some really significant changes in the 1840s. And I really wanted to talk about the, you know, the violence and the struggles of the American Revolution um, to start with.
1: Makes a lot of sense. And those are things we're going to get into. In fact, All right, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about what you've just mentioned, how settler colonialism changes over this period.
0: So I think it's hard to have a super, you know, like, straightforward narrative. Um, maybe something I've wrestled with in this book, to be honest, um, because I think that like, settler colonialism varies a lot by the demographic power of group that they're interacting with, and also um, according to the nature of what the settler colony is trying to do, whether they're looking for resource extraction or whether they're moving into really large-scale settlement. Um, and I, that might also have a big impact on how relationships work on the ground and, and like how important, say, family networks are or aren't. But you know, with those kind of caveats, I think that there is a shift from an empire that's really dependent on local agents needs to build some kind of relationship with um, local peoples. So in that way I don't think North America is necessarily that different from other parts of the empire. And in order to, you know, have local agents who are broken relationships, that sometimes involves them forming kinship networks with people on the ground or, you know, trying to use kinship for political purposes. Um it's also a period in which settler colonialism is very dependent on indigenous men as soldiers usually. Um and is also, I argue, North America really focused kind of ambivalently around resource extraction versus settlement, and also in which the empire is distrustful often of its own settlers. So you can see that in North America with um, you know, the reliance, uh, reliance to some extent on military alliances with indigenous groups that kind of the empire will try and use against settlers. So, so there's a different set of relationships that's often founded in different technology, I think. I think see a a shift really into the early 19th century towards the development of ideas of settler nationhood as settlers struggle for more autonomy and largely gain it. And I think that story of settler democracy is often about, in part, controlling indigenous groups. Uh, And so indigenous groups actually often, and I'm saying indigenous groups with kind of, if if you could see me, I have quotation marks around indigenous groups in the air because they're obviously very diverse people, but there's a real... uh, a real uh, shift in the power of indigenous groups who become increasingly, I think, merged into one in the kind of British understanding and and seen as um, weaker and uh, you know the uh, the hype of, you know the idea of a vanishing race and so on and so forth. So I think that therefore in some that there are these really important structural changes with the development of white nation states and. Um, that's related to greater bureaucracy and effort to move away from kinship relationships. And I also think that there are shifts in relationships with Indigenous people. This is not um though to deny just how, you know, other really important continuities like, like continuities in violence and you know, which you can see exploding in different parts of the Empire well after, you know, the period of the end of, of my book. So I see continuities as, as well as shifts.
1: Thank you for explaining the changes, but also the continuities, because I think that the continuities make the changes more obvious and vice versa, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think we're definitely going to talk about um, violence in a moment because I think that's really key. But I want to sort of stay on this idea I don't even know if it is change or continuity, it's sort of both, right? This idea of common processes. Mm, And I really appreciated this as a way into understanding these networks and links of process, of thing that is continually happening, not kind of, here is a date, a thing happened, and that's it, right? (laughs) Um, So I was really interested, particularly given the geographic scope of these families, even some of the individuals that kind of
0: keep popping up in different places.
1: Can you tell us about some of the common processes that link them together?
0: I think they're all trying, in some ways, to come to terms with violence, um, which is essential to maintain settler states, and yet at the same time, is always cast as exceptional. Um, So I see the brand families as they're involved in military alliance, and, and at the base, their relationship is about you know managing violence to enable. The British and then particular people to maintain control in north america i I see the banisters as also kind of wrestling with these issues about how to control violence but constantly encountering it where they don't think it should be um and the similarly the you know the buxton network also trying to come to terms with the fact that you know settler colonialism is very violent when they don't Think it should be so. All of all of them are wrestling, I think, with the on this kind of ongoing violence, but this violence is almost like a uh, something that is not meant in the conception of how empire works to be there, but is constantly there. So they're also um, so. I think that this process of um, the ways in which borderlands function as well is um, something else. I see. I, I see all of these families in some ways as kind of involved in. Forging new relationships in contested borderlands, um, and those borderlands kind of you know, where they are changes through time. But I think the fact of borderlands is um significant. Um, and maybe I, I you know, we would also see like family power and the efforts to um forge relationships that might cut across existing categories. I also actually see as um something that they're involved in, um, to some extent, uh, religion is also a kind of common continuity. Um, you know, I kind of seeing them all as they all have some relationship to Christianity. <laughs> we all have a complicated relationship to Christianity. And I see, yeah, religion cutting across different groups in, in the in settler colonies. Um, and maybe another, kind of, this is a bit of a complicated I kind of just trying to think aloud here, but um, you know, processes of identity formation and how identity formation relates to power relationships. I, I'm thinking about the development of ideas about whiteness and white supremacy. Um but, you know, also the idea of what does it mean to be quote unquote Aboriginal in the way that um you know at the time people use that that term, can people mobilize um, as Aboriginal or not? And how do they, this is that concept get used by humanitarians. So I think there's this constant process of forging identity, breaking identity, identity being deployed to political ends on uh, on the ground. And, And yeah, I think you may need to stop me talking because I just. <laughs> think <do>. No, that's <laughs> it. But land is good. another huge issue. Like, you know, the um, struggles over land at the most basic level, which is in the end what settler colonialism is about. But I also see like all, you know, all of these groups having some relationship to land, to claiming land or thinking about land.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of those um, come up kind of as you were saying them. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that example. Oh, yeah. Um, And one of the ones that I found really interesting was this idea of religion that it was quite complicated in every sense, right? That like the Brants and especially the communities that they were in, if I remember correctly, um, the kind of mixed communities and the communities that were very much debating kind of which side of their heritage mattered more because early on in the period, kind of, it was way better to be related to the Haudenosaunee than it was to the British, um, like random fur merchant people running around, right? Um, That was not the high status side of the relationship. Um, And there but there was a whole debate then about how identity formation around race came in, but also around religion. Were you Anglican? Were you Catholic? Were you this kind? Were you that kind? And I was like, oh, I didn't expect that to get mixed up in it. Okay. And then on the other <laughs> yeah. the other end of things, with the Buxtons, um, really wrestling with, and sometimes they went together kind of so well that they they sort of had a multiplier effect between their Quaker Christianity and their like let's abolish all the things about slavery, but also empire is great and let's continue that. And it was like, whoa, hang on, how are you using the same religion to do multiple different things
0: at once? Yes. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we don't really think about, you know, putting about abolitionists also in this category of people who are quite supportive of empire. Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I, I'm really struck that Buxton and his family networks, Priscilla, Buxton, his daughter and others, they really thought that God was supporting the Niger expedition, which was, um, you know, effort that, to say. That a- did help
1: me understand, though, why they were so upset
0: when it failed. Yes, because they couldn't believe, God had supported them through abolition, clearly. So why wasn't God on their, you know, what's happened to God here? Why, why is God not giving them the victory in um, in Western Africa? Right.
1: Well, so speaking of victory and where it does or does not come in, um, let's, I want to talk a bit more about this idea of colonial violence, right? Because that's a huge part of settler colonialism and to be honest, I was kind of expecting that this piece would be relatively straightforward, right? That it would be like, okay, Bannisters pro violence, yes. Buxtons maybe not because of the Quakers, but probably okay as long as someone else is doing it. Um, <laughs> that was kind of my expectation. I did not approve of that reading, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was sort of my expectation going in. Yeah. And yet, yeah. Bannister Sax Bannister at least seems really into treaties is really into like bringing up problems with colonial violence in court cases. So there's obviously a lot more going on than my initial assumptions. So can you tell us about how these families engaged with but also tried to navigate colonial violence?
0: Yeah. So I could maybe start with the Bannisters. Um so Sachs Bannister in particular is really obsessed with how can settler colonialism, which he thinks of as a good thing, be made to work in a way that's beneficial for Indigenous people as well. So he, I think, really genuinely believes that there's a beneficial path forward where you can have a partnership between settlers and Indigenous people. And even at some point, he even proposes having representatives of what he calls Aboriginal people coming, you know, come to London, have a kind of some kind of Almost of a quasi, um, you know, institutional power structure. Um, he wants settlers to learn indigenous languages, so he has you know, all of these ideas. But he's constantly confronting the fact that everywhere he goes, there's this extreme violence on uh, in borderlands, um, which you can often you know, could often see as I, I would argue indigenous resistance. And, and so he just he spends his life trying to figure out how to deal with this, and, and he really becomes convinced it's partly because settlers won't behave themselves. If settlers were moral, then this could work. Because he really thinks that indigenous people will consent to, um, I, you know, what I'm calling colonialism. I'm not sure he would cast it in those terms, but you know, they would consent because they could benefit from it. You know, And he, and he thinks it can benefit economically. So if only they were allowed in. So the problem is, you know, the empire doesn't allow people in. The empire needs to be this kind of inclusive, um, kind of more multicultural if you want to kind of like use super modern language entity and I think I actually think that's interesting because I think in a lot of ways that actually is what um, a lot of kind of modern you know settler colonial states now are trying to do actually um, so it's it's not a thousand miles away from current practice so um he sees treaties uh yeah thank you for picking up on treaties um for, for him treaties are really important because treaties can signal consent but um as i tried to show with the example of what happens when his brother tries to get involved in making a treaty in australia uh treaties are not at all straightforward and they're really complicated so sorry i should tell us about maybe, that one. yeah another huge topic so um I think that the Brandts are in a world in which uh, violence is essential um, and they are, um, so Joseph Brandt becomes a corporal in the British Army during the American Revolution. I One of the things that I see going on there is that the empire needs allies, um, they need indigenous allies, they need indigenous men to fight and therefore loyalism which somebody like Bannister might see as a path to peace is actually a path to violence for a lot of men because they, they have enormous pressure put on them to show you know their military utility and then the empire will I mean you know, the empire is a very big abstraction but not, you know, however you could define it them the people on the ground as well try to draw in indigenous soldiers just as also trying to bring in Scottish Highlanders to come and fight or Hessian warriors so they're just you know and and even former enslaved people they're they're trying to build armies and and then they and they do what they can to build those armies so Johnson I think in some ways is you know using kinship links and and then you know the empire will abandon them they don't necessarily have like long-term ties to them so I, I one of the things i'm trying to get at but it is that I see that as also in some ways a kind of like violence in the sense that armies are committing violence and also these are the quite violent structural processes that lead to men being in the British Army in the first place if that makes sense mm-hmm. um and i also think it's you know because of that I think it's you know we don't tend to think of like new york as a colonial frontier but if you kind of step back into the 1770s, it actually is a place that is potentially very violent that becomes incredibly violent in the American Revolution in which violence just explodes Um, because because it's basically a land war. So I think that, you know, you could, if you reread some bits of the American Revolution as land wars, you can see them as also as instances of like the integral violence of settler colonialism. So I, you know, I, I, I'm not coming up with a very clear answer on the Brants because I think it's incredibly complicated. But I think that you know, all of their relationships with the empire are kind of really through the military and then through this lens of the necessity of violence to hold land. But that violence also requires the empire to, in some cases, have indigenous soldiers, have indigenous allies because they can't otherwise um, hold it. So,
1: yeah. and, well, and then I, So I'd love seems- to stay on the Brants for a moment, yeah. if you don't mind. Um, because I think you've just helped us understand kind of, as you said, how central violence was to their life. Um, And I sort of want to put that in the context as well as your main point about kinship, because at least for me in a lot of senses, um, kinship, not just within the family, but kind of shaping all of the relations around it, came through really, really clearly with the Brants and the kind of community they were in. I think in a lot of ways because of kind of that, that moment of identity formation was in a lot of ways so open mm. um, in a way yeah. that we don't think of that time as kind of being open to identity yes. yeah. contestation, yeah. but it really clearly was from um, the evidence that you have in the book. So given that you've just told us about kind of the role violence is playing in shaping the Brant's life, um, can we add kind of kinship into how that shape social and political ties in this context of violence?
0: Yes. Um, in in the most direct sense, um, Molly Brandt, as I said, was the partner of William Johnson, who's a very powerful figure, Northeastern superintendent of Indians. Um, He is, I think, trying to broker his relationships with the Haudenosaunee through relationships with Haudenosaunee women, which could be seen as sexually exploitative. I, I, I kind of leave that open, not Having a evidence either way, but he also has relationships with other women besides Brandt, and he has children. So those children then, in themselves, kind of can act as brokers. That's a pattern that was very common in French colonialism, and and that was you know very common for the fur trade. Uh, but those, they, they are, I think, people who are dependent on moving between these different worlds and having a kind of foot in each because they're functioning as brokers, and and that's something that's really. Essential in this kind of um, this different kind of early modern imperial environment, as a lot of American historians have argued, um, Molly Brandt's daughters all end up marrying almost all of them marrying uh, like white men who are in the colonial administration in um, Upper Canada, and so I think they're trying to use those marriages to continue to broker power. Um, her son remains in the Haudenosaunee community, marries an indigenous woman. So they're clearly different paths for women than for uh, than for men. Um, this also would be, I think, quite controversial for some people in the Haudenosaunee community itself. All of this, however, to my mind, really shows a Haudenosaunee community that's trying to use kinship networks to some extent to... Actually, you know, broker relationships that will function to their advantage, um, and that's partly possible because um, you know membership in the group is still under their control, and, and they can define who's a member, and they have even enough land to assimilate people. This is also part of the ways in which uh, hunter use captivity to adopt and assimilate new kin. Um, I one of the important shifts that I try to document in the book um, is the fact that. Colonial states try to actually block those forms of, like, relatively fluid relationships, and try by the by the end of the nineteenth century, uh, will will be saying no. It's the state that will determine who has Indian status and what happens to the children of relationships. Um, so you you know you can't really have any more of that um, status where the child of a indigenous woman and a white man would have status in both white and indigenous communities that have kind of been forced to choose. So people no longer are able to have a kind of fluid identity through kinship as states try and control identity. And also as indigenous communities um, often under extreme you know, stress and with loss of land and immiseration themselves often become much um, more concerned about membership issues. So kinship is something that I see um, people at the beginning, the Brandt family at the beginning of my book um, trying to use in a way that, you know, reflects the fluidity of categories and they try to present themselves as, you know, in both in in different environments. And and then politically that by the end of the book, I'm trying to use the example of the Brant family to um, show the pressures to not be fluid, to kind of be white or indigenous one way or the other and, and ways in which the state is trying to enforce that.
1: Well, so that's what I want to kind of ask a bit more about is the idea of the state enforcing this, because in a lot of ways, it would be very easy over this time period to go, ah, well, the thing that made the difference there is the US revolution, the fact that America becomes independent, that's what makes the difference. Um, But as with many other assumptions, that's way too simplistic. So when we talk about the state impacting these kinship models, and kind of in creating these pressures for this change, to what extent is that America becoming independent, or is this happening kind of on both sides of the new borders?
0: I think it's happening on both sides, but in different ways. Um, so the Americans are much more blatantly trying to uh, reject the, you know, the Proclamation Act of 1763. You know, they want to expand to the west. You know, the the American Revolution, as you know, historians know, gives people uh, a justification to. Sorry, I was just seeing a sign about connection and reconnection. Oh, yeah. So, so there's kind of you know massive move into uh, take over indigenous lands, and the that's somewhat clear. But at the same time, they also um, are are trying to maintain some of these relationships. So there's still like ongoing diplomacy. It's not a completely um, uh, one one thing or the other. In Upper Canada, the imperial state wants to have you know a colony that is not America that's not going to rebel. Um, they want to have uh loyalty and they therefore, you know, they cultivate alliances with indigenous people longer than would be the case in the States. Um again, partly because of the demographics of the colony. They don't have very large settler um settler communities. So in on the face of it, that looks different. But I think it ends up being very, very similar. I think that ultimately Settlers want to define themselves apart by, you know, having uh, control over indigenous groups. And as settler, you know, as a Canadian settler state becomes uh, more concrete, um, they, local colonial administrators will try and like make it the case that Haudenosaunee don't have direct relationships with the British crown. They say, no, you have to negotiate with us. You can't go to London. Um, you don't have a one-to-one relationship. You have a relationship with settlers. And all of this is kind of a precursor to the Indian Act, which will then really define who's who's quote-unquote Indian and who isn't, and just kind of gives all of that over, over to the state. So I, I think that these different societies arrive at it by different routes, but in the end, some of the implications are the same. And, and it all also comes down to you know creating reservations again this is a bit outside the scope of my book but just creating reservations defining who can live there defining what identity is um, what happens to you know mixed so called mixed race marriages now become regulated by the state with the state saying what happens and whose identity and I think in both America and Canada I think you can also see settler communities really trying to define themselves um, as not indigenous <laughs> so as. Um, really repudiating some of these past relationships.
1: I think that that is a really interesting example of kind of something we were talking about earlier of change versus continuity, right? The idea of there's been a big change. The 13 colonies are now independent, but actually, hang on, the trajectories of what the settler colonial state is doing doesn't actually change that much or kind of continues along a similar trajectory despite this thing that looks like a change um so i really appreciated that kind of helping us look past the obvious to see what was happening and similarly i think um your tracing out of the banister siblings does that as well because um even if we just look at the brothers they're in very different places right and yet they're doing a lot of things that are similar or in sort of conversation with each other. Um, and there's a lot of links that we can sort of see there to uncover, I think, perhaps to me, this family, most obviously, the networks of Britain's global empire. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about kind of the lives of these siblings and how they show kind of this functionality of a global colonialism?
0: Yeah, what a great question. Thank you. Um you must, by the way, cut me off if I start to say too much about all these different, <laughs> <I> <laughs> all these different there's the brothers. There's a lot of them but they were all over the place. Um, so I'd start with the just pointing out that they themselves see them see the empire as somehow the same uh, um, which I think is also you know, really interesting and significant. Like They write about we couldn't decide where to go. Like I could get a position here or I could get a position here and They clearly think of this as a kind of field of opportunity, like it's an opportunity for British capital and it's an opportunity for British settlers. And they also, I think, are thinking of indigenous people as also somehow the same, which I also think is really interesting, as actually does all the humanitarian debate in Britain in the 1830s. So indigenous people have this kind of structural relationship with settlers and things have to happen to make to make that work on a personal level. So Sachs Bannister and um his brother John William actually start out that, that they dip their toes in Empire by um having a relationship with um a son of Joseph Brandt, um John Brand, who comes to London in the 1820s to actually try and negotiate with the Colonial Office about um land in Upper Canada, um all kinds of basically land grabs that the colonial state is doing. And Sachs ends up um, as a kind of contact, um, trying to assist them. And his brother, John William, has known them through his own networks in Upper Canada. So John can- John William, as a settler in Upper Canada, has these networks, which include, to some extent, like some relationships with indigenous people, but also relationships with land speculators who want the Haudenosaunee to get you know, their land so that they can then be uh, entered into the land market. So this is a very complicated confluence of forces, which means that they come into a relationship initially with the brands. And then Sachs tries to kind of broker that into, I'm an expert on indigenous people now. And he tries to you know, writes the colonial office and tries to explain all the things that he could do. And again, interestingly, uh, he does not get the appointment he had wanted in Upper Canada, but he does get the chance to be selected to go to New South Wales to be uh, the first Attorney General of New South Wales, because um, those are obviously the same job, obviously the same thing, obviously the same. Yes. So he kind of goes off to New South Wales and then starts fighting horribly with everybody there. He's clearly a really difficult man. He's also accused of being, you know, mentally ill at various points. But you know, he 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 fights with everybody and ends up losing his job. In complicated ways, I could talk about more of you won't, I'm Trying, um, but you know,
1: <laughs> we'll stay at the um, summary level for now. But any listeners who any listeners who want to know more details about just how cantankerous this man was, the book has some great stories.
0: Let me try and like so. Let me try and make that a little shorter. So yeah, so he kind of goes from New South Wales to South Africa, uh, where he kind of you know, tries to set up, um, and then ends up coming back to Britain. In the meantime, his other brother, uh, John William, is a settler try to broker you know global try trying to make a living as a settler but also trying to attract investment in Upper Canada and he ends up being appointed uh, uh, as a chief justice in Sierra Leone another thing that is of course obvious um, yeah no we and, just went
1: from Upper Canada to Sierra Leone nothing to see here that's fine
0: exactly yes and he thinks that the same principles can be applied and then the younger brother Thomas um, ends up uh, similarly trying to make a kind of living for himself in different parts of Australia so what something that unites them is that, is that they're looking for economic opportunities in all of these places. Uh, and they're clearly thinking of how can I broker, you know, the interconnectedness of empire. So just to take uh, one example, uh, you know, Sachs Bannister wants to develop uh, various kinds of wool industry in, in different places. Another example that I think is quite telling is Sax Bannister, despite everything he's saying about, you um, the need to have you know, full and informed consent and his recognition of relationships on the ground, tries to take a treaty that has been brokered with the Zulu in complicated ways um, and then put that into a colonial land market and use it as a basis for arguing that the British should you know, establish a colony in Natal, but in which he would have a significant financial interest. So he's trying to set up you know, his financial interests in... Natal, and even as he's arguing that colonialism can have all of these horrible effects, he's very actively involved in promoting it. Um, His brother Thomas is again trying to make a living in Australia in various complicated ways, and John William is trying to get investment in Upper Canada and getting people to build canals. And so all of this suggests that for me, they're kind of seeing the empire as, as this area for economic opportunity, in which they can go to one bit or the other, but they're trying to do kind of structurally the same things, like claim land, set up business, attract investment. Even at the same time, as Sachs in particular is also arguing that there are really these common features among indigenous people, and he's trying to argue indigenous people should have almost their own parliament, and that there should be all these links between them. So I think this is just really interesting in terms of, on the one hand, thinking of the empire as a common space, and on the other hand, you know, the, the ways in which that shows the economic interconnectedness of, of, of different colonies.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that really does it. Um, and even just at the summary level, your linking of the different siblings kind of explaining what they were up to is kind of like, oh, wait, I really see what this kind of big picture idea of the linkages of empire. It's like, oh, yeah, OK, we can literally just see that with one family how that works in practice. Yes, that was
0: what interested me so much about them.
1: Yeah, I can see why. And again, I bet it was really interesting to trace it all out in the archives.
0: It was, although they're a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They
1: do sound a little bit, yeah. Um, They're they're obsessive. (laughs) Well, so speaking of obsessive, I'm going to make an executive decision and ask you a question I was going to ask you a little bit later, but on this idea of uh, the slightly obsessive and the trying to, on the one hand, go, this is what colonialism can do. But also, I'm going to go over here and extract whatever I can. Um, I want to go back to this idea of the Christian and the abolitionist and also colonialism. Um, Because the Buxton family really is quite Quaker, really is quite abolitionist, and yet is also pretty pro-colonialism. So how exactly does that make sense?
0: So, I will say that interestingly, I did find in Thomas Fowle Buxton's papers a kind of little scrap of paper um, in which he was addressing some kind of meeting and saying that he, which literally said he didn't think colonialism was a good idea. Like you can, and he seems to have, by the end of his life, moved away from that. Sax Bannister spends tons of time trying to persuade Buxton to just more fully support colonialism. So, I think that Buxton kind of changes his mind and comes to be more fully supportive of colonialism. So yeah, it. I think it works partly through bringing God in, in, in some way. I mean, I think he thinks that God has a plan for the world. Uh, this is maybe not at the level of political economy, but I, I do think this family sees God as blessing the British empire and wanting the, um, the empire to do good in the world for however problematic that seems. But a second more concrete way is I think they're concerned with violence, and I think he, they, I, I'm saying they because I'm really kind of thinking of the Buxtons as, a, you know, there's quite a several of them who are write together and um, do activism together. I, I, I think they kind of come to see the solution to all of this uncontrollable violence uh, as being a kind of larger ordered entity, and I think they think the Empire can do that. And, you know, similarly, in um, in addressing um, anti-slavery, um, they come to be concerned that abolishing slavery isn't working, partly because Africa is still continuing to produce uh, enslaved people. And Therefore, the solution is in part to make like to make treaties with um, African leaders to enter into um, so-called virtuous commerce with the British Empire and um, abandon slave trading. So all all of this clearly has many problematic things we could unpack here. But the kind of central point I wanted to make is they they end up thinking you need some overarching entity that can bring like commerce and peace and that is worth trading with. So Buxton has secret. Clauses in in this Niger expedition to try and purchase land from an African leader and create a cotton plantation, uh, which is being invested in by Quakers, who again might see this as a kind of worthy thing to do. And I, I think that moment for me it just shows how profoundly entangled this becomes and how hard it is to move away from the idea of um, from the idea of empire. But you know, I think fundamentally it's, it, it is about there is a need for order in some overarching way which can be brought by the empire and secondly that empire will bring christianity Like so kind of you know the niger exhibition again is it's a cotton plantation but it's also missionaries uh, and that will benefit people and without the empire um for Buxton. You know settlers will be very violent, so he kind of projects that onto settlers. And the only way to control like out of control settlers on the ground is by having this kind of bigger, more virtuous, overarching international. I'm using international quotation marks. we you know kind of organization that that will somehow bring virtue and uh, yeah uh, commerce that will benefit everybody. So I kind of see that in some like really interesting ways it's kind of reflecting like current debates about intervention and what the role of international institutions should be.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I think I think that kind of ambivalence um you document in some of the letters and speeches is also really interesting. Um in some ways I was kind of like hang on a second how does this how, how could you possibly square these things? But yeah. in some yeah. ways it was both comforting and troubling that they also had to think about it. Yes, um, I know i yes. like, well, okay, at least you don't do it unquestioningly. At least you do seem to think about it
0: for a while. On the other hand, after you've thought about it, that's still the conclusion you've come to? Hmm, okay. Yes, I know, I know. It's amazing how all of this just ends up with, yes, the British Empire is a good thing and it should keep going, despite the fact that we are documenting all of this extreme violence everywhere. Right, which was odd. So
1: speaking of the documenting, um, I'd love to, this is a slight tangent, but I am the dictatorial interviewer, so I'm allowed to do that. Um, I want to talk about letter writing.
0: Mm, because
1: yeah, yeah. this, obviously, you know, we've talked about archives, right? We've talked about your ability to excavate what these people were up to, and obviously, a lot of that is through letters, right? We know that the Bannisters, for example, no matter where they ended up being, were very much in communication with each other, um, and obviously, I mean, you've just kind of mentioned in the boxing example you've just given us that the kind of, a lot of the different family members wrote together, and that was part of their activism. That was a lot of how they were having these debates um, about Christianity, about colonialism, whatever. So a lot of what we know about these stories is through letters, um, and a lot of it is about, you know, extending Christianity, extending empire, these very statist, organized, often quite male-dominated things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And yet the letters... The fact that the kind of form factor of all of this was letters really seems to have had some ways in for women, Um, despite the fact that colonial policy, I mean, it's not like they could vote. It's not like they could go stand in parliament. It's not like they were even probably particularly welcome on colonial ventures necessarily. So can you, you know, how does letter writing and gender fit into this idea?
0: Yeah, can I answer that with quite a chronologically specific answer Um, i think that you know there's a real difference in the early 19th century say from the late 19th century Um, and maybe we could just focus on the buxton's and on britain women are given access i think to um, uh, networks of power um, through family relationships um in a way that might like others have argued you know that becomes harder after full male suffrage when women are much more kind of formally excluded from the political process, so but these are women who have these family networks, so that's kind of I think uh for me, that was something that I found really interesting was was how do families give women some access, some women some access uh, but then they uh, um maintain that through the very female. Uh, practice of letter writing. So so I think that writing letters is is very gendered female in the early 19th century. So not necessarily practical letters, but kind of long gossipy letters that tell you everything, that give you a lot of detail. That's something that women see as a way to maintain their own networks. But I think that gets transmuted in a political context in the Buxton family. The women write these letters across the empire and, and they receive correspondence so Priscilla Buxton um, clearly spent huge amounts of time write, writing letters, but she, she's writing to like leading abolitionists and to leading politicians. And then she's kind of gathering their thoughts, but she's also writing to other family members. So she's maintaining um, some more specifically actually often quite female network. She's writing to all the women in her family. And then she's writing to these very political men and she's writing to abolitionists and she I think in this, he's kind of really merging like the personal and the political. So it's this very personal activity of writing the personal letter that then mutates into writing a political letter. Uh, partly I think because the women in the family actually had the time to do that on a very basic level, but she takes that on board as as her role as, as mutating correspondence. I think um, that those correspondence networks in themselves become really important because I th- also think this is a period in which there's a lot of um, kind of competition over who gets information as a huge information vacuum. So I, I do see the Buxton's as partly functioning as this um, parallel, uh, almost, they almost want to be a parallel civil service by getting information and, and they fill the same kind of function you might see um, like advocacy groups today in, in terms of getting information out there, but they can't kind of get that information often in formal ways. They have to get it through informal ways. So letter writing, informal letter writing becomes just fantastically important. Um, so there, and there, I see like you know the role of women being, yeah, being, being really crucial. So that's a really specific mm. example. It's just the example of Brazil. No, that's Bach. a that's a great example. Um, but I think, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, I think somewhere, and you kind of, if you just kind of look at, oh, we'll look at the official archives, you kind of miss a, a lot of this.
1: Right, and especially, I think the comparison with modern advocacy organizations makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's often the idea of making a wider audience aware of stories
0: not just facts yes absolutely absolutely i found this um in the archives in new south uh in new zealand i was like totally not expecting it i was there for a conference and i just i idly like put in okay i have a day i'll put their name into the catalog and it turned out there's a collection of papers that i think was priscilla's um compilation of papers that she was then using to present to this uh, parliamentary committee on indigenous people like she's but it just showed to me she she's it may have been another member of the family i'm not 100% sure it was Priscilla but it it She's got all these like newspaper clippings and letters and she's surfing bits and she's trying to pull out the stories. And then she like literally writes like this would be a good piece of evidence. Like this story would be a good piece of evidence. So I think you're totally right. Like getting stories, getting the stories into circulation and using your networks to pull out those stories. That's a huge part of what they're doing.
1: And that makes sense within the context of kind of traditional uh, feminine writing, right? The idea of, you know, yeah. gossip, like gossip is stories, right? And they're memorable stories. So that's that, such an interesting point. Right. You can, you can kind of fit that in as like, well, if you're already telling stories about what your neighbors got up to three months ago, right? It's not that big a stretch to be like, well, actually my brother is off in Sierra Leone and he's working on this, you know, to obviously mix up the families a bit too much, but that sort of. It it made sense to me because when I looked at the Buxtons initially, um, I was sort of like, "Hmm, wow, okay, women are quite involved here. Interesting. And then seeing it through that lens of letters like, oh, wait, I see how this all fits
0: in. Yeah, that's so interesting. Actually, just to mention the even the Bannisters, Elizabeth Bannister writes a very emotional series of letters to a local patron a local uh, duke to try and get patronage for her brother but because she's a woman she writes it she I think has given herself liberty to write it in this uh performatively female way um if that exists we may not I don't know if everybody would agree that there is a performative way of being female in the early 19th century but you know she writes it in a really emotional way and she tells a story about her brother and his sufferings and why he why he deserves patronage which she does does not get
1: (laughs) Well, anyway, um, hopefully we have gotten at least a decent amount um, of the book in. I'm sure listeners can figure out at this point that uh, if we had unlimited time, I have many, many more things I would love to ask you about. And there's loads of very interesting detail about the things we've mentioned in the book. Um, But I am going to wrap up the interview here because unfortunately, we do not have all the time in the world Um, with my final question of the book is out. People can go read it. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a Book whether or not it's about this that you'd like our listeners to be aware
0: of. I have two projects. Uh, one of the projects is I'm looking at a group of four um, people, hunter gatherer background from southern Africa, San people, who were displayed or who displayed themselves in Britain from the 1840s to the 1850s, and spent ten years travelling around the travelling around the country. So I'm trying to trace them, but also ways in which they were seen and ways in which discussion of them um, is in, important to uh, emerging ideas about uh race so both trying to tell a story and also trying to tie it to some larger processes and then my second project um, is, is i'm trying hoping to write a book about rent and shifting to look at the kind of social history of housing and debates Ooh. about um yeah debates about um how much rent it is ethical to charge and and how people struggled over that issue and also just looking at um the social history of housing in both a colonial location and in a British location. Hmm.
1: All right. Well, very interesting projects. Um, While you are off investigating them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Empire, Kinship and Violence, Family Histories, Indigenous Rights and the Making of Settler Colonialism, published by Cambridge University Press. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for this really interesting discussion. I'm really grateful to you.